Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, everybody. I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. you've hit a plateau inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know ask katie anything hey everybody welcome back to another episode of ask katie anything this week was my birthday um i'm recording this a day after my birthday usually i record and film these on a tuesday but today it's a wednesday um and thank you all so much for all of the wonderful birthday messages and all of the love it was really really nice i tried to kind of not completely be offline because i did instagram story but i just tried to stay offline for a day and it was kind of nice to be honest um and something that i like to do around birthdays and maybe you guys feel this way too sometimes the new year can do this to us also but around birthdays i always try to think like what's something I've learned about myself or the way that I'm interacting with the world this year. And I think the, I, I made this the journal prompt. If you guys are part of my memberships on my uh, Katie Morton channel, the memberships on my YouTube page, I offer journal prompts. And I was kind of talking about this lately. That was one of the journal prompts on Tuesday, yesterday, because I'm always trying to think of what I'm learning, right? We should be learning. Hopefully some of us, maybe not always, but we try. Um, and something that I've learned about myself that I need a little bit more of is patience, especially this year. It's been really, really important for me. And then the other is kind of like um, how valuable our time is and how important it is that we spend it with people that make us feel good and better and just all around awesome. And so I don't know, maybe that helps you. Something that I've been considering is like, hey, if following a certain person online or spending time with a certain person leaves me feeling worse or feeling anxious or I dread it or any of those things, I you know, I give you full permission to not engage with that person. And I know a lot of people are like, well, they're family or, but we've been friends forever. Hey, sometimes things change. And sometimes we have to distance ourselves for a little bit because it's just not healthy for us at the time. And anyway, so I've just been thinking about that. Maybe that sparks something in you. It's just been in my own journal entry and journal world is I've just been contemplating how I spend my time and who I spend my time with. But without further ado, because you didn't come here to listen to me spout nonsense about my own journal stuff, you want me to answer your questions. Ask Katie Anything is the name of this podcast. So let's get into it. And I have 10 questions. And if any of you are wondering where I get these questions, I get them from the um, community tab on the Opinions That Don't Matter uh, channel. So if you're watching this on YouTube, you've are, you're already halfway there. You're at the YouTube page. Then when you go to the homepage for that YouTube channel, 
I need you to go to community and then you'll find it. On Mondays, I ask, I even have it scheduled so it goes out at the same time every Monday, asking for your questions. And then I pick the ones with the most thumbs ups. However, YouTube does this thing where it sucks and it doesn't let me sort them by the number of thumbs ups. It does newest or most relevant, I think, is the two things. I'd have to look at it again. Anyway, neither of which are most thumbs ups. So sometimes we have some that fall down into the bottom of the list and they have like 40 thumbs ups. If that's you, I'm sorry, but I've done my best to go through them and come up with the ones that have the most thumbs ups. And with that, let's get into number one. Number one is, hey, Katie, how can I calm down in therapy? Most of the time I feel really anxious and nervous in session and it really bothers me because I feel if I'm not able to think and talk about my issues very well and I tend to push all of my feelings away and just feel empty or dissociate, then I'm not really uh, able to open up and show my feelings even if if I really trust my therapist. Why does this happen and what can I do to manage that? Thanks for all that you do. Of course, I think a lot of us, so therapy is weird, right? It's a strange thing to feel... I don't know, to go talk to a complete fucking stranger about all our problems. It's weird. And we don't know anything about them. That's weird, right? It's very weird. So it's okay to be nervous. It's okay to feel like it's different. And it's odd. And it's uncomfortable. And we can get anxious and nervous because we know they're going to ask us hard questions. And maybe we aren't sure how we want to answer. There's a lot going on. And so I just want to normalize that and let you know that it's completely okay and completely normal to feel a little anxious in therapy. But the real truth about this is you need to bring it up to your therapist. You need to let him or her know that you're struggling with this and you'd like their assistance. And I know easier said than done, but that's what therapy is there for is a place to practice healthy communication. And they maybe don't know that you are anxious. I mean, hopefully they kind of do because therapists are supposed to be good at finding like sensing that. But maybe they think that's just how you always are. And you're like, no, it's just when I come here, all of that's really helpful. So letting them know and letting them know that you struggle with dissociation. If you struggle to even say these things, you can write it down and bring it in and read off of it. That can also help you open up and show your feelings and talk about what's going on like for you for real. Like when you say, you know, I can't really open up and show my feelings. If you can journal about this and then email them, ask if it's appropriate, ask if they allow for email. You can email them your thoughts and what's going on or you can uh, write it down and read it in session. That can be helpful. I know that that's helped a lot of you. You've told me that's been really beneficial. For some of you, it's still difficult, but we got to find a way in. We got to push through. We got to challenge ourselves a little bit. And so even if you, I would even say, even if you dissociate while you're reading that thing, I find, I think it would still be helpful because we're still uh, like giving that information to our therapist, which in turn allows them to help us uh, better, I guess, for lack of a better word. So that's one thing. Another thing I've talked about, and I think someone left a comment below this saying, I've mentioned this before, but like having a thinking putty or silly putty or a fidget toy or something in our hands can sometimes help us stay grounded or help us manage the anxiety, right? It's a way for us to kind of cope with, I don't know, with any of the upset and angst and worry thoughts that start maybe spinning, like maybe even on our way to session, we already, if you go, a lot of us are still online. So maybe, you know, 10 minutes before we start to build up and thoughts start picking up speed and we start to feel overwhelmed, that can happen. Fidget toys can be great for that. Or you can create like a calming ritual before therapy where you put on maybe your cozy pants or your cozy clothes. You turn on your noisemaker or get in your closet. I know a lot of you've had to do phone therapy, or not phone therapy, car therapy. 
whatever you have to do to kind of create your safe space, create this ritual that's calming and soothing, you can do that stuff too. Um, but those are just some of the ways that we can calm down in therapy. And it happens mainly because of what I was talking about, how strange the therapeutic relationship is. And the fact that we talk about the things we don't talk about with anyone else that can cause us to be stressed and worried about that session, because we're going to have to open up about things we maybe don't know how to open up about, right? Like a lot of people have told me over the years, like, the most beneficial part of therapy was finding the words to describe what was going on. That in and of itself can be really healing. So we may not have the words. So the the thought that someone's going to ask it, uh, ask us about it, and we don't know how to verbalize it can be stressful. So know that however you feel, it's completely okay. Everyone feels this way. Therapy is a little bit nerve wracking. I get nervous when I'm trying out a new therapist on my first appointment, because part of me is a people pleaser. And I have to fight that because I know that's not healthy. But then part of me is like, I don't, you know, how much do I tell them? What if I don't like them after the session? It's all swirling. And so I get it. But we kind of have to let them know about it. We have to push through whether it's through email writing, um, and reading it in session or whatever. And then fidget toys, things like that. Um, something that I've given to my patients who struggle with attachment and anxiety in session, I'll give them what I call a transitional object. I've talked about this before on the podcast, but it's like, um, I'm trying to think there's like a little sculpture in my office and it's like a, a wooden, a carved wooden man. And he's, he's like curled into his uh, arms, like his arms curl into his head and he kind of is in this ball. It's really beautiful. And um, an older patient of mine had, had carved it. So anyway, it's a beautiful piece and I've lent it out to patients over the years because they loved it and it felt good for them. And I was like, take it with you. Cause I it was going on vacation, let's say. And then bring it back and them having it with them can help them feel more contained and like, oh, Katie's here. It's okay. Like a reminder of the work that we've done together. You can also, when you finish therapy with a the therapist, sometimes therapists will give transitional objects for you to take long term as a reminder of what you've done together, like the work. But sometimes it can be helpful for us to soothe us outside of session. I know I'm getting off topic, but I'm just talking about all the ways we can kind of calm down. Uh, in regards to therapy. And I think a lot of that is just letting your therapist know that you feel this way, letting them know that you feel like you're not able to think or talk about your issues in the way that you want. Maybe we write it down and uh, start working on that. And maybe we practice verbalizing it to ourselves at home before we go into session until it feels comfortable and we're able to say what we need to say. All those things can help because it's very, very common and they will help us push through, but maybe they just don't know. And those are all ways that we can kind of get that message out there so they can help us and get and meet us where we're at. Okay. Question number two. Hi, Katie. What do I do if I feel like my therapist doesn't always believe me? Hmm. There are, um, there are times when I feel like she dismisses my problems or doesn't realize how much they are truly impacting my life. I will want to dive in further to certain issues, but she'll move on or focus on something else. I've been told that despite being open and descriptive about how I feel, I don't always show emotions and seem very high functioning. So could that be the cause? Thank you for all that you do. Um, yes. Okay. So there's a couple of parts to this. Number one, if, if we act like things aren't a big deal as the patient and we are high functioning, we don't show any other signs and we just kind of gloss over things because, hello, we all kind of do that sometimes. As a therapist, we can miss the mark um, because we're not mind readers as much as we try to like read people's body language and eye contact and things like that. We can miss it. And so your therapist could be missing that, thinking that it's not as big of a deal as it really is because you're not 
communicating that. And so the first thing that I would encourage you to do is to tell your therapist about this. I know we don't want to always tell our therapist things. And a lot of you've told me it's really hard to open up to them. That's what they're there for. You have to let them know if something that they're doing is upsetting and making you think that therapy is not working or they're just dismissing how you feel. We need to let them know. So let your therapist know that this is happening. Let them know that or let her know that she's, you feel like your problems are getting dismissed and you recognize that, you know, you, you can talk about how you feel, but you don't always show your emotions and you seem very high functioning, but at the end of the day, you're really just barely hanging on and you're really struggling. Let her know. That's important. That's a really great way to practice communicating past just being really descriptive about how you feel because being open and descriptive only gets us so far, right? Then we have to advocate for ourselves because even if we say, like if I am feeling really anxious, but I talk to my therapist like this and I say, you know, I've just been feeling like I've had these worry thoughts and I know it's anxiety driven and I just, it's been feeling, I've been feeling really overwhelmed, but you know, I was able to do all I needed to do and I just kind of brush it off and talk about all the other things and just move on through it. Even though I've described anxiety and it being debilitating, right? I could do, I, then my therapist might think, okay, well, she's aware of it. She's doing things to manage it. I'll write that down. We'll come back to it later just to make sure everything's okay. And she might move on. That's very common because what we, what I needed to say, instead of just describing what it was and moving through what I'm doing, what I maybe should have said in session is, you know, I've been feeling anxious and having these worry thoughts. And even though I'm able to do everything that I need to, I feel terrible and I don't like it. And I really want to get this under control. We need to advocate. It's that advocation, like, I don't know, advocation, that's not a word, is it? You guys, you guys Google it, you let me know. But in the, like, we need to advocate for ourselves. And it's in that part of the work that we can actually receive the help that we need from our therapist. Does that make sense? Because they might not realize because we're human too. And so we need to bring it up and hopefully things get better. But I do want to add, and this is really important, is that if we talk about it openly to our therapist in a real way, we really advocate for ourselves. We tell her what we need. We tell her what's upsetting us. We tell her how we're really feeling and that we tend to like be really great at talking about things, but we don't, you know, express how big of a deal it is. We do all that and it doesn't change. And she keeps, you know, like dismissing your problems or acting like, you know, they're not that big of a deal. Like they're not really impacting your life and like glosses over things continuously after you've directly told her about it. We need to find another therapist because the one thing, I mean, other than feeling like our therapist gets us, listens to us, is on our side, that like basic click that we can talk about in the relationship and therapy. Other than that, the second, I'd almost argue like equal for the most important thing, along with that that click, is that we feel like they, they hear us and understand us. Like they're on, they believe you, they validate your experience. We really need that. We finally reached out for help from a professional. And the last thing we want them to say is like, oh, that's not that bad whatever, you're overreacting. And I know they won't say it directly, but I'm saying we don't want to get that feeling out of therapy. We, what we want to get out of therapy is, oh, thank God I'm not alone. There are things that I can do. Yeah, right. My mom is crazy. I didn't make that up. You know, we just need that validation that that experience like, oh, that friend was a jerk. I knew it, but I just felt like maybe I was the one to blame. You know, it, we just need that. And so I want to make sure that we've communicated it because it could be that that is holding us back. And then if we change therapists, we'll run into the same problem again. And that's why we need to try at first, try communicating it first. And if it doesn't get better, then I would encourage you to find someone new. Um, 
but yeah, I think, I think that's way more common than we realize. So if you're out there and you're going through the same thing as the person who asked this question, know that it can get better. Know that we just have to try to communicate through whatever means. And if it doesn't improve, it might just not be the right therapist for us. Okay. Question number three says, how can I draw the line between coping and coddling myself too much? I love this question. Sometimes I feel like I'm being too forgiving with myself when I'm trying to cope. It almost feels like I use coping, quote unquote coping as an exercise to get out of tasks. Oh, I have some patients that have done that. We've been working on that. Excuse me, I had to burp. I also think that I am way too overprotective of myself. I am a rape survivor and I have a tendency to not do some things because I feel like something bad is going to happen to me. What can I do to push myself a little bit more without suffering much inner peace and self-security? And there was another comment that said, yes. How do you differentiate, say, really needing a day or week off for self-care to prevent burnout versus self-caring your way through life and using it as an excuse to be lazy? This feeds into my habit of procrastinating and putting off work due to perfectionism. So could you maybe talk a little about that a little bit? Um, How do you deal with the cycle of anxiety, guilt of feelings of worthlessness? All great questions. And the everyone's going to be different. I know that's such a shitty answer, but it's, it's the truth. Okay. Everyone's going to be different. And the, the real answer is that if we are quote unquote coping, and I'm not saying, I'm not using the air quotes to be like, it's not real coping, but if we're coping so much so that we can't function in our life, if we have to self-care like a motherfucker so much so that we can't get school done, work done, uh, can't keep our house, can't feed ourselves, can't shower. If there's functioning that is impaired because of all this coping that we're doing, it's a problem. That means that we need more actual professional care because coping is going to take over our entire life. That's really the line I want to draw there. And so I want you to hear it again. If we're coping so much, because you said like, oh, I have to take a day or two off, but needing a day or a week off for self-care How often is this week off happening? I'm very curious. And I would encourage you to keep track of these because everybody, especially now during the the time of COVID and pandemic, we're all a little bit maxed out. We all need vacations, even if we can't really leave, you know, or go very far, we need to take breaks. So it's okay to take vacation. We all need those times and we need days off. Like that's why we have weekends. I would encourage you not to work and not feel like you have to do too much stuff in your free time so that you can charge up. But If taking those breaks, like, you know, most people do every, let's say the week off is like twice a year and, or how many, what do people usually get two to four weeks usually? So that many times a year, whatever is like, you know, you have the time off and the day off, you know, just start paying attention to how often you're doing it. And if it starts to get into this, this, uh, amount that's like impairing our ability to do anything else, then we really need to find more professional care, because what we're doing is just not enough. It should not get in the way. That's when we're coddling ourselves. But I don't even like to call it coddling ourselves because in a way that means that to me, that sounds like I'm not worthy of this. I'm overdoing it. Why am I doing this this way? It sounds very judgmental. I instead would change it from where do I draw the line between trying to cope and needing more care? Because that's really what this is. If we can't engage with life, without coping like all the time and taking all this time off to do self-care and which self-care just sounds like I don't want to do anything. I just need to relax and not talk to anybody, not see anybody, not do anything. If we, you know, 
have to do so much of that. That means that we're not well, we're, we need more support. And there's no nothing wrong with that. No judgments around this. But I think so often we feel like, you know, you're coping as an excuse to get out of tasks. It really means that you're not doing well because you don't feel able to do the tasks you need to do. So check in with yourself. That's the real difference. If and then there is that caveat of the fact that like, are we just procrastinating because it doesn't sound fun right now? Or is it that we don't have the energy because maybe our depression has creeped in? So therefore, small tasks take too much energy and we're immediately defeated and worn out. Again, back to needing more care. Does that make sense? So I wouldn't even call it coddling versus coping. I I would call it, you know, uh, coping and managing or maybe managing life and needing more care. And so that's really how I would, I would draw that line. And so only you are going to know what you're doing. If you're, uh, if you're coping and you're not able to, it impairs your functioning. If like you can't make it to work or school or get the things done that you need to do frequently, we all have off times. I'd give you like a week of like, ugh, things were shitty, but I pull it together and you know, everything else has been okay. But other than that, you know, how frequently is this happening? And then um, the other person saying, when you really need a day or week off for self care to prevent burnout or self caring your way through life using as an excuse to be lazy. Again, with the judgment, I think instead of considering it being lazy, I think we I want to talk more about it in the lens of depression, anxiety, or PTSD symptoms, because the main, the first person who asked this question said that they were a rape survivor. So PTSD is horrible and difficult, and the symptoms can be completely debilitating. And so again, we might need more help. Um, and that will get you out of that cycle that the, the second person that uh, left a comment on this about anxiety, guilt, and feelings of worthlessness, which feeds into the shame spiral that is PTSD, right? We all know trauma comes along with a lot of shame. It's just so, so common. In order to stop us from getting stuck into that, I think we're going to need to get more professional help. And then I kind of want to answer just to wrap it up because the first question was like, what can I do to push myself a little more without suffering much inner peace and self-security? Those are going to be, I mean, I would encourage you to do it with a therapist because I really think we're going to have to push ourselves. So in my book that will come out, I don't know, next year, I think it is, I think it's next fall. So maybe about a year from now about trauma, I talk about how triggers do protect us. If we avoid triggers, it protects us from being triggered. It protects us from being potentially re-traumatized. And it makes sense why we avoid triggers. However, the more we avoid triggers, the smaller our world becomes. And so healthfully with the support of a therapist, we have to re-engage with those triggers and push ourselves and maybe give up a little bit of our inner peace, knowing that we have ways to cope afterwards. We have to challenge it like exposure therapy is one of the most effective ways to treat this. And so we're going to have to kind of push past those triggers a little bit and challenge ourselves in that discomfort level. It's kind of like a zero being like, I'm so calm, I'm asleep, 10 being like full panic attack. We want to get you up to like a five, maybe a six, and then we want to use our tools and calm ourselves back down. And so really doing it with a therapist and figuring out what you're what things are ones, twos, threes, fours, five, six, all the way up to 10. What are those situations that would equate to those? Can we write those down and give them descriptions? And then can we engage in those things and then use some resources and tools to calm ourselves down? Does that make sense? We're kind of like engaging with the scary thing, calm our system down, engaging with the next scary thing up the ladder, we calm ourselves down. And we kind of do this back and forth, back and forth until the thing that used to be a 10 is like a three or a four. And we're like, you know, I'm cool. And it'll just slowly move back because we'll realize we're like training our brain, improving to our brain that the thing we thought is terrifying and a threat 
really isn't. And it's not actually that bad. So that's really what we're trying to do so that our, our world doesn't get smaller, it gets bigger. And we don't let the trauma and the abuse or rape or whatever it was that we sustained have any control or take any more from us than it already has. And so that's really my answer to that. And I know that's kind of like a very long winded answer. But I really think it has more to do with the amount of care that we need. And I give you full permission to get as much care as you need, so that you can feel better. So you don't feel like you're just like coping your way through life. I know that we're going to have to cope for a while in life, especially when we're recovering from from a trauma. But I want you to to thrive, not just survive, right? It's like we can be white knuckling it for a while while we process. But the goal is for you to thrive and to not have to do these weeks of self care and not feel like overwhelmed and and then judge yourself and feel lazy. Sure, we all no matter what, we're going to have some times where we feel that way. And that's okay. But that shouldn't be the norm. The norm should be us feeling good and able to manage and not really thinking that much about it, like it not being as big of a deal. And so we want to get you there. And that might just mean we need a little extra professional support. Okay, so that's my answer to that. And I hope that that was helpful. Okay, question number four says, Hi, Katie, is it normal to feel triggered by someone being soft with you? Sometimes I get triggered by people like my therapist making me feel vulnerable. But it's weird because I never truly had that in my life. So why is it triggering now? Someone left a comment on this, which was exactly my first thought. And I'll dig into this more. But that comment was something to the effect of like, I used to have this because whenever my mom was nice to me, it meant that something hurtful was going to come. She was like manipulating me to bring me in. And then she was hurtful, lashing out. And so I got to the point where someone actually being nice wasn't something I could trust because I just knew that I was waiting for the next the shoe to drop, right? The next thing to happen. And it was just knew that I would be like hurt or upset or something, right? And so that's that could be one of those one of the reasons that we are triggered with someone being nice and soft. Also, I don't want to downplay discomfort. I think we talk about discomfort, like, ooh, this is so bad. But discomfort can also just be unknown, right? It's uncomfortable. I'm not used to it. Um, I always remember when I was in therapy back in college, and I had a slew, I think I've talked about this a lot. And it was in my other book, my first book, Are You Okay? I talk about like, how I had some shitty boyfriends throughout the years. Uh, Some that would be manipulative, some that cheated on me, some that were just not available. Um, and then the good ones that were actually nice, I was like, oh, you're boring. And, you know, I dumped them. So super unhealthy. And my therapist, I was trying to figure it out. I'm like, why do I keep getting caught in this cycle and blah, blah, blah. And she was like, you know, um, it's because you're you're used to that. Like you had this really long term relationship through high school into college where this was what was happening. And so that's what you know of as romantic relationships. You keep repeating that pattern and you don't know how to be with someone who doesn't manipulate you, lie to you, all that stuff. And she was right. I was like, Oh, fuck, I'm doing the same. It's I'm I'm finding the same person over and over trying to like fix this old relationship that was just a turd to begin with. And so I say that and apply it to this meaning that it doesn't it's not comfortable for someone to be kind, you're used to someone being harsh and terrible, or, you know, really hard with you. And so when someone's soft and caring, you're like, what? that's really weird and uncomfortable. So that could be another reason. I'd want you to be um, curious in your own about this, because it could come from a lot of different things, like the person's comment, 
that we're just like kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop could just be not normal at all. So it feels really weird, potentially like icky to you where you're like, I don't know where this is coming from, right? It's unpredictable. And unpredictable can be really scary. That's kind of the trouble that people have uh, with changing and not even changing, I guess more like breaking patterns of behavior and relationships and things like that is like, even though our, our current pattern is super unhealthy, and it's not giving us what we want, we know it, right? It can't, a lot of my patients have told me over the years, but I know my depression, like, I know how it's going to feel. I know how long it's going to last roughly. I know the pits of it. I know how bad it can be. But to not feel depressed and to feel happy seems scarier because like, where does that end? right? We don't know anything about it. And I know that for some people, especially people who haven't felt that way, that can feel strange. You're like, what? Why would you be scared of feeling good? But if you've never felt good, or you can't remember, it's been so long, it seems so foreign. That unknown is scarier than the known, even though we know the known is unhealthy and doesn't lead anywhere good. At least we know it right? Does that make sense? Maybe I felt that way. I hear that all the time. And I think that's something that's also important. And the third thing I want to mention, because I, I really think that this could be something that a lot of us are struggling with, is the the feelings of shame and worthlessness and all of that that kind of comes along, or even just lack of self-confidence, right? If we don't feel very confident or very good in ourselves and we don't have much self-worth, it can be really difficult for us to accept that someone else thinks we're worth it, right? So for a therapist, when we're getting vulnerable and when we're um, sharing things that we think are horrific or really are really difficult, they're supporting, they're empathizing, they're like holding that for us and, you know, allowing us to experience all we need to experience, we can be like, oh, hold up. Wait, I'm not, mm -mm, this isn't for me. Like, I don't deserve that. I don't know why you're being so nice. This isn't right. And, you know, I'm not worthy. It's like, reminds me of the Wayne's World movie. It was like, we're not worthy. So you might feel that. And so I would, that could be another reason that that's happening. And I think that between those three Maybe that kind of gets you started, but I would just encourage you personally to be curious about it because this is very common and we can feel like, but no one was soft to me. So why is this even triggering? I don't even know why this would be happening or why I'd be feeling this way. You know, it can be tricky for us to figure it out, but those are, I think that maybe those are just little seeds that we could plant. We could see which ones grow, see which ones lead you to a place that makes sense to you. And yeah, keep us posted. And let you guys let me know. Do any of you have you felt that way? And what was the answer for you? Have you been curious about it? What did you know? Why was that triggering? Because I think that in there somewhere is our answer. Okay, moving on to question number five says, Hi, Katie, how can I begin to work through trauma? When I don't know what it was that traumatized me when I can barely remember anything? Thanks. This got a lot of uh, thumbs ups. And I think this is very, very common for people. When we've been traumatized, it's very common, if you don't know, for our memories to be jumbled, to be fragmented, to be completely repressed. We might have no memory, especially if something happened to us when we were very young. I mean, it's hard for me to recall things when I was a child. So a lot of my trauma patients will have a tough time putting them on a timeline because they're like, well, is this when I, I don't know, did that happen when I was like four? Or maybe I was 10. I don't know. Or maybe did this happen first? Or did this happen first? I mean, if, if any of us just dig into our memory and try to think of a couple things that happened in our life, it can be hard for us to know which happened first, especially if it was a really long time ago. But specific to trauma, our brain, I've talked about it, like the movie Inside Out, that uh, amazing film, if you haven't watched it, I highly encourage you to watch it. 
But they talk about memories as being like marbles. And so when memories are formed, they're like these smooth, round marbles, and they're rolled away and filed into our long term memory. Okay. But trauma memories would be like those marbles are starting to be formed. And just as we're getting them going, oh, wait, maybe somebody bumps the thing that's making it, or let's say joy or sadness get in the way and poof, that marble shatters on the ground. And so it can't be filed away. We often aren't sure which pieces go next to one another. It's like a crazy puzzle. And I really like the marble, like think of it like glass and it like shatters because that's how it can feel. And then when we're walking around in our mind, creating new memories, we can step on those little splinters of them. And then we're like, ooh, flashback. Ah, Where does that go in relation? Did that happen to me? What is that? Right. And so I really like that analogy. I hope you do too. It just helps me like visualize memories, especially trauma memories. So anyways, when it comes to this, I want you to know that's very normal. And the truth about the work that you can do in therapy is really what I would just call like beginner exploration. So often when we've been, because uh, I'm curious how you know you've been traumatized if you don't know what it was. That makes me curious, right? So let's explore that. That's our first like cookie crumb to lead us to what we're trying to figure out, right? Which is what traumatized me? And how can I start to remember it? Because repressed memories do come back. We just have to feel safe and secure where we are now. And I also want to throw out there that a therapist should not lead you to finding this, meaning no leading questions. Like, it's okay for a therapist to be like, so tell me about, you know, uh, do you remember middle school? Let's start there. Tell me about that, you know, and they can set up little uh, kind of start conversations about certain times in your life. That's totally fine and acceptable. What a therapist should not do is say, I mean, do you ever remember someone touching you inappropriately? Maybe like your dad, did your dad touch you? Like we should not lead that, especially when we're trying to uncover these repressed memories that could cause us to form false memories about something that never happened. And so just keep that in mind. And if your therapist is doing that, it might be time to find a different one or to let them know that you're not comfortable with that. But the real work, I think, so to answer this question is like, how can I begin to work through a trauma when I don't know what it is? The, it's just being curious about our life and exploring it. And if we have these chunks of time, like I can't tell you how many times I've heard from you and my patients that there'll be these huge, huge swaths of time in their life. Like, I don't really remember anything from like eight to 12. And I don't really know, like maybe it's like seven to 12. I, it's all blurred. It's all a blur. I don't really remember. I think we moved at that time. You know, we won't really know much. And those are indicators. That's like a red flag to me. I'm like, oh, we should check that out. So maybe that's something you do is you go through your memory and you're like, are there any big blocks of time where like, I just can't remember, Hmm, right? That could be helpful. That could tell us that maybe that is where the trauma occurred. I don't know. I'm not assuming that that is 100% true, but we should be curious about it, right? It's okay to wonder and to think about it. Hmm, Maybe that was when that happened start trying to piece that time together. Talk to a sibling, talk to a parent if if it's safe and okay. Ask them what they remember of these times. We can start just being kind of curious. We're exploring. That's why I think I always use the term like we get to be a detective and being a therapist is like a detective. I'm like, okay, so the, the question is who did the traumatizing and when did it happen? Hmm. And then we then we get to be a sleuth. We go looking for evidence and we can do that because the thing that's interesting about trauma memories is even though they can be hard to recall and it can be confusing for a while, we do have that information. 
We do have those memories. They did not go away. We don't just lose memories, especially trauma memories. They're just stored a little differently and they can be difficult to piece together properly. And we have to give ourselves time. And so make a timeline. Notice if so kind of to recap, because I feel like I talked a lot. Um, make a little timeline. If there are times in your life where you just have like no memory and no recall, also know that it's, it's completely normal and healthy to not be able to remember details of things before five years old. We're just not forming long term memory yet. It's part of our development. And so it's around the five year mark where we start to form these long term memories. But if we had something big happen, oftentimes we'll remember like I tried to run away from home. I got mad at my mom when I was a kid. And I packed up my bag um, and then I tried to run off to my grandma's house because she she just lived like a mile away. Not the best idea. I was a little kid. And I don't think I was even five yet because I think I was still in diapers. I remember packing diapers. And I remember that, right? It was because my mom wouldn't let me eat candy. It was something stupid. I forget what it was. She remembers. But anyway, it wasn't even a traumatic, but it was scary because I saw a deer because I was walking in the woods because I live in the country. I was walking like across through the woods and I saw a deer and I got scared and ran back home. So it was a short lived thing, but I remember it. That's weird. And it's when I was very young. So you might have a few of those. But by and large, you won't have a lot of long term memory before the age of five. And that's normal. So don't think that that means something necessarily happened at that time. Okay. But then as we just kind of get curious about these blocks and these times when we don't have memory, we can start where we do remember things or ask around and if we consider like what years this was and what where we were in school or what, what we know happened because people have told us, then we can ask those people for more information. We can look through photo albums that can help spark it. There are a lot of things that we can do to be detectives to try to figure out what it was that occurred and when and how and we kind of piece it together and know that it's okay for it to take time. It's okay for us to be unsure. That's why we check in with other people in our lives that are trusted. Uh, what would you call them? Like a, a CI, you know, it's like a confidential informant. So we need to have like these trusted informants um, in our, when we're being a detective so that we can figure out what took place. And by doing that work and taking our time with it, we will be able to piece it together. Just trust me. I've seen it happen over and over. I've seen Tons of repressed memories come up um, on their own, unsolicited, as we're just being curious about it. And so that's really the way to go about it. And someone also asked a question um, kind of in regards to this. So I wanted to answer it in this question was, can I ever, uh, if I don't talk about the trauma, will I ever be able to get over it? And the short answer is, unfortunately, no. Um, unless we're doing there are there there is research. Okay, so I did a lot of research for my trauma book. And there is some research. I think even in the body keeps the score, he mentions this very briefly. But you like EMDR does not always require you to talk through things. Um, some of the research points to the fact that we can just imagine like we can just think about it while we follow a finger or, you know, a light or a buzzer in our hands while we have that bilateral stimulation, they call it an EMDR. While that's occurring, if we're thinking about the traumatic event, not even talking about it, it can get processed. So that's the only type of therapy that I've heard of that does not require you to talk about it. But other than that, I'm sorry, you cannot process through and uh, come to terms with a trauma if we don't talk about it. Okay, moving on to question number six, I'm gonna get a little water here. I feel like I must be talking quickly today because I'm like, gasping for air. It's probably me. Maybe I'm just anxious today. It happens, you know, it's normal. It's okay. I'm just going to uh, try to calm down and be here with you and not talk so quickly. 
Okay. Question number six says, hi, Katie, I was emotionally neglected my whole life. And that explains why I'm emotionally extremely walled off. And at the same time, extremely attached to my therapist, super common. I feel like I'm still a little kid on the inside that is stuck in an adult's body and will therefore never receive the gentle love, affection and soothing that it so desperately needs and wants. I've been reading up on this and all I could find was that I need to learn how to self-soothe. But to be honest, I don't want to do that. I want someone to soothe me and love me and care about me as if I was a, were a scared three-year-old. And I can't really live with the thought that I will never, ever get that. When I'm scared and feel like a little child, I start to imagine my therapist being there and talking to me in a caring way. But I know that this will never come true and it physically hurts me. What do I do? How can I help that little child that is stuck in my mind? I know it won't be enough to just give the love and attention I lacked as a child to myself. And I don't think I'd be able to do that anyway. That's the problem. I don't think I'd be able to do that anyway. Um, because we cannot. So unfortunately, when we're older, um, once we're out of that attachment phase, which is the first year of our life, okay, um, that's when we form our attachments. And I believe that it can be built and grown and it can change as we get a little bit older, but there's kind of like this door that closes on the way that, that we develop and grow as humans. And there's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, if you want to get into developmental psychology, you can talk about the different stages, whether it's Erickson stages, you can really get in the nitty gritty if you want to, but I'm here to tell you, unfortunately, you're going to have to learn how to give yourself that love and attention and care. And I know you want to fight back. You're like, but I can't. Someone else has to do it. That takes all your power away. That makes you beholden to another person who we can't trust. Because that's the problem with this that I've seen over and over and over again with my patients. And even viewers online, you guys have shared a lot of your stories about this. How we put all of our, uh, I don't even want to say eggs in one basket, but we put all of our worth and belonging. And yeah, I guess it's worth belonging and uh, confidence, trust in ourselves, we put it in someone else. So we we have someone that fills this void that we've been feeling since we were a child, right? We have this big hole in ourselves. And we, we find a person like usually it's someone we date, or it can be a therapist. Therapist is very common because they they show you that, uh, you know, that support and care and love and uh, encouragement, right? All the things that maybe we've been wanting, they, they give us like that non judgmental support that we've needed for our whole lives, probably. And so we can try to put that person in that hole. But the problem with that is that person is not our parent, we are not a child anymore. And they have their own life. And I know that that's hard to hear. But when we're you know, birth to one year old, we depend on a caregiver to be there for us, to support us, to love us, to give us that emotional, because you said you were emotionally neglected. So even if they cared, they cared for our physical needs, emotionally, there was no support, there was no conversation. So I'm so sorry that that hurt your feelings, you know, tell me about it. And it's okay, I'll hold you, we'll make it better. We didn't get that. We didn't get any of that understanding, that support, maybe rubbing on your back, listening to you cry about falling or someone being mean or that dog scaring you. No one comforted us in that way and allowed us to be human and to be a child and to not know and to be scared about the world. Sometimes if we didn't get that love and support, then trying to shove another person into it now doesn't f heal that child. I know it feels like it would, 
but it doesn't because that person is fallible, right? We're all humans and therapists go on vacation. Therapists are unreachable sometimes and they, you know, you have to give them 24 hours to get back to you. Therapists refer patients out. Like I, uh, you know, as I was traveling more, some of my higher needs patients had to be referred out. So they got ethical care because I wasn't around as much as I, I felt I needed to be. If we try to put a therapist in that hole, that means that we're dependent on seeing them for the rest of our lives and getting that support all the time. And that's a really scary place to put ourselves in. Also, if it's another person like dating relationships, relationships, and people don't aren't there for us 24 seven, because they're humans, and they're independent, and they're adults, and they do their own thing. You can see how this just leads to more pain and upset. And I know that's hard to hear, but I just really I need people to hear it. Because so often I hear, you know, I will, this person will make it better, or I'll have patients for years who struggle with attachment. They'll be like, well, now I'm in a relationship with this great girl or guy. And I don't need to talk about that anymore. And I'm like, no, now more than ever, we need healthy boundaries because filling that void doesn't leave room for healthy boundaries. It doesn't leave room for independence of any kind. And it also doesn't leave room for errors, which all people deserve because we're again, we're fallible, right? We do things, we say things we don't mean, we get in fights, we're not available, we uh, need alone time. And that does not work in this scenario, because we're trying to take a person who's not our primary caregiver, and may put them in that role, and they don't really belong in that role. That means that then our relationships don't get to be uh, romantic relationships in a regular way, we are dependent on them. And we can't do things on our own. It just, it just perpetuates an unhealthy situation. And I hope that that makes sense. If you guys want more clarification, feel free to ask follow up questions about this. Um, but it, it's just really important that you hear that. Okay. And so that's why all the stuff that you've read has told you that you need to give the love to yourself. And I know that it sounds kind of woo woo, and it can be kind of tricky. But the truth about it is, it's it's actually, it's something that we all need to learn how to do, we actually need to learn how to self soothe in general, because otherwise we're dysregulated. And what we're going to depend on someone else to come around and soothe us. What maybe a lot of times we become dysregulated in the middle of the night, we expect someone to get up and so soothe us. You know, again, it's going back to the fact that that person is not our caregiver, we are no longer a child, no one's going to come and soothe us when we need it. I know that can be hard to hear. But that's that's just life. And so we have to learn to do it for ourselves. Because even though this sounds really depressing, and I don't mean it in this way, but the only person that we can control and count on 100% of the time is ourselves. And there's power in that. There's like uh, hope and uh, empowerment and motivation and all of that is wrapped up into that. If we can just think about it in that way, I can control myself. I get to choose what I do and don't do. I can self-soothe. I have all the knowledge and the tools and I know what I really want. I'm just expecting someone else to do it because I didn't get that as a child. And I'm, we need to recognize that. And I know that it's hard to hear. And I'm sure your therapist is trying to get you to come around to that. Um, so that's, that's part of it. And then I want to move into what's really maybe holding you back is the grief. Because in this question, there was something, yeah, um, um, I know this will never come true. And it physically hurts me in reference to the fact that your therapist can't be there, you know, um, can't like care for you in the way that you're wanting someone else to care for you. We have to grieve the fact that our parents sucked and were terrible and emotionally neglectful. It hurt us and we didn't get what we needed. And it's okay to feel sad and to grieve that. 
And then the, the way that I always have my patients try to work on this and like reparenting and healing themselves. And also there's that great book, The Emotionally Absent Mother. Um, and then there's another book, if it's your father is related to it, The Unavailable Father. They're both in my Amazon uh, shop and it's amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. You can find all the things that I recommend. They're both in there. Super helpful, I think. Um, anyways, what we have to do is then write a letter that's how I usually start having my patients do is like writing a letter to their younger self, like the child like you, that like three-year-old child that needed love and care and support. Or um, I don't know if there's like a memory that you have where someone wasn't there for you and you really needed it. And it was really like traumatizing. Um, could you write a letter to that child? What would you tell them? If they were your child, what would you do? I'd like you to think about that because in that is the answer to how you can self-soothe. What would you do if that was your child? How would you talk to that child? And then even as child you, you can write letters to adult you because you might spend more time in child mind right now. And that's okay. What would you say to that to your parent that was emotionally neglectful? What did you wish they did? What did they do that was hurtful? It's okay to write about that and, and explore that and validate then adult you has to come in and validate how that child you felt. And I know it feels kind of woo woo and weird. But I find letter writing to kind of be the uh, helpful medium in that. You can also role play in therapy. So that hasn't been as successful for me with my patients, but everybody's different. If role play really helps you and it's a way that you can process, I support it 100%. But that's really how we do the work. We have conversations. We have to offer ourselves like in that emotionally absent mother book, um, I did a video about it. And she talks about, the author talks about like good mother messages, like I see you, I care about you, I love you, all of those things that we maybe didn't hear, we need to find ways to give them to ourselves. And does that mean that we, um, we tell ourselves in the mirror, write post-it notes, I see you, I love you, I care for you? Maybe. Are there ways that we wanted our mom to show us care, love and support? Could we heal that wound by doing some of those things for ourselves? If we trip and, or maybe we're cooking dinner and we cut our finger could we bandage it up and be like, it's okay. It's okay. It'll be okay. I'm going to take care of you. I know that sounds really crazy, but that's part of the work that we have to do is doing the things that maybe a parent didn't do for us. And I know it's sad and it's okay to grieve, but I just want you to know. And I know that's, that's why I spent so much time on this. It was like trying to put someone else into that hole and fill it is only going to cause more pain. I know it seems easier and more like it's a natural knee jerk reaction, but it will always leave us feeling worse because they're people and we're not a child. And there's just not that relationship like it should have been when we were a kid. So when we cry, our mom comes, or our dad comes or whoever our primary caregiver is comes. We're adults and it doesn't work like that anymore. And people aren't, you know, people have work and they miss our phone call and don't call us back for six hours. And, and that's acceptable. You can call your therapist or reach out, but we have 24 hours to get back to you and we may not be available. And that is acceptable. And to put those people in that hole and have that happen is just adding more wounds to the pile. And so I know that it's hard work. I know that it's uncomfortable. I know that we, the child in us wants to throw a tantrum and be like, I don't want to, I'm not going to do this. But that's okay too. Listen to that child. What are they mad about? Why? I bet if you uh, were curious and journaled about that, even wanting to throw the tantrum, I'm like, I can't do that anyways. I, this is never going to work. I want my therapist to do that. Like if we allow that child in our, in like that, that child voice to throw the tantrum. Can we write about that? Can we allow that child to have a voice and to want and to throw the tantrum? 
I think we can. And then can we be compassionate and understanding and allow it to happen instead of, you know, getting frustrated and feeling like we have to snuff it out. That might help us feel a little better too. Anyway, there's a lot of ideas. Um, that's why that's all you found in the research is because that unfortunately is the, the way to heal. Okay, moving into question number seven. And I hope that the answer didn't come across as harsh. That's not the way I wanted it to be interpreted. Though I just wanted you to know that I know that urge to put people in that void in our life is super strong, but I've seen it time and time again. It just leads to more pain and more upset. And so the real way to protect ourselves, protect childlike us and adult us is to do it ourselves. And I know it's not comfortable and it's not ideal. Unfortunately, it's the best way. Okay, question number seven says, this question almost made it two weeks ago, had 40 plus likes. Thanks for asking again. It says, hi, Katie, is it normal to feel like your life is split into two eras or seasons when something traumatic happens? For example, three years ago, my parents got into a huge fight because my dad found out that my mom was texting another man. I was there when the fight happened. My dad cried and yelled so much. And at some point in the fight, he turned to me and said he's going to commit suicide because his life doesn't have any meaning to him if my mom doesn't love him. That whole fight, especially what my dad said to me that moment is stuck in my mind so much. And I still remember it randomly from time to time. Yeah, it's traumatizing. From that fight on, I have a feeling that my life is split into two, my life before that fight and my life after the fight. The latter seems tainted somehow. Of course, you went through a trauma. Is that normal when facing little or big T's? Yes, it's very normal. It can be like pre-T, pre-trauma and uh, I guess PT and AT, <laughs> pre-trauma and, and after trauma, because I can't do post to be the same then, right? So it's very normal for the, you know, the before and the after it to feel like that, like it's split. And the truth about it is that I don't want to say 100% of the time this can happen, but it's very common that when we process through what took place, and we uh, recognize and validate all that we felt in that moment, because it's like your world was, it was not exploded, but it could feel like that, like the rug was pulled out from under you, like your whole, your whole family just like, was disheveled, right? What you thought was happening wasn't and there's this huge, uh, not only did you your parents were fighting crazily in front of you and maybe potential divorce or whatever and you're worried about your family being split apart which is stressful enough but then your dad threatening to take his own life is even more terrifying and scary and just stressful because you're like but he's my father and I love him and and then they could have blame on your mom and she could have guilt and there's just a mix of emotions and so I would encourage you to be curious and uh, honest with yourself about what you experienced that day or that evening or whatever and that fight and talking about it and validating how you felt because it's okay that no one should witness that with their parents. Um, you know, parents shouldn't do that in front of children. I don't, they, you know, they're doing the best they can, but sometimes that's not good enough. Right. And so anyway, there's a lot that happened and I feel like you taking the time to, uh, not just describe it, but like to tell yourself the story of how you felt and what you went through and then to talk about it with your therapist, you can get outside validation while at the same time validating yourself to say it's okay, that you had no control over that you were not part of that. It's it sucks that I had to hear them talk like this. That doesn't represent my relationship with my mom, nor does it represent my relationship with my dad. You know, whatever we need to do, I would encourage you to, to give yourself an opportunity to validate what you went through in your experience and how you felt to talk about that fight over and over until it loses its emotional 
charge we talk about, which is like how overwhelming it can feel or how maybe we go into flashbacks or dissociate. Like we want to get it to a point where we can talk about it without any of that upset where we're like, yeah, it sucked. Ugh, it was horrible, but I'm okay. I survived, you know, and, and we could talk about it in detail, but if people ask questions it it might be a little bit like, well, that's kind of, you know, personal information, but we could talk about it. Do you know what I mean? That's kind of the goal of it. And I think that once we do all of that work, it won't feel so split. But there is something too, and I've heard this from a lot of my uh, patients who've gone through divorce, whether they've been through it personally, or they're a child of divorce, that having these kind of schisms or uh, a, we thought something was like, quote unquote, perfect, like our family was a unit. And now it, we see that there it's like not the same, right? Something's been something shifted, things are a little different, we can feel that, oh, that break that space, and it can be really uncomfortable. And we can feel like the rose colored glasses were thrown off, and we can't look at relationships or our parents in the same way. And some of that, unfortunately, is part of growing up. I've talked about this a lot, how I think all of us kind of have to grieve over time, how our parents just aren't what we thought they were. And, you know, we think like, I remember forever thinking my dad could like fix anything. And then after he passed away, we learned like there were certain things he did. It was fine, but they weren't like the proper way of doing things. Like he put a roof on our house and like, it wasn't quite right. And I'm like, oh, I guess dad couldn't fix anything. And he didn't do that, you know, and they kind of fall from grace, but it's not really, I, I know a lot of people look at it as like a huge negative thing. It's more they fall back to reality because so often our parents, we hold them in this like uh, otherworldly level, like, oh, they're so perfect. They know everything. They can do everything. And then we realize that they're human. And then we have to grieve that difference. And so it's okay to grieve that. It's kind of like that rose colored glasses being ripped off where we're like, hey, our parents aren't perfect. They are fallible people. They can do things that are hurtful. They can say things that are scary and they can harm me. And I have every right to feel that way because I should not have been put in the middle. Um, but they're human too, you know, and it can be part of that and grieving that loss and grieving uh, that change in our life, I think will be a key component in your healing process. And I'm sorry you had to see that. I'm sorry you had to go through that. But it's very, very normal for you to feel like your life is split into like two chapters or I forget what phrase you use. Let me look back up here. It's like um, two eras. Yeah, that like pre fight and after fight. Um, yeah, it's. I think we all kind of have those moments as we grow up and talking about it in therapy and processing, processing it is really the best way to go about it. I wish I had like more to offer, um, but I have tons of videos about trauma as a whole and my book will come out next year that hopefully is helpful. But yes, that is very, very common. And again, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. That is a huge trauma in your life. Um, and so if you're not seeing a therapist, I would encourage you to start seeing one. Okay, question number eight. Is it possible to improve suddenly in several mental health aspects? Hmm, good question. One day I'm attached to my therapist. I'm very anxious around people. I feel suicidal. I sleep a lot. And one day all of the above seems to have disappeared. All problems in roughly the same day. I'm currently in that quote unquote okay state. I'm hoping it lasts for a long time. I don't think I did anything different. I didn't put in any effort, it just happened. I would be curious in all the comments kind of, I love when you guys like answer the question for me in a way. I'm like, I think something that I read the comments, I'm like, exactly. Yes. A lot of the comments said, what's your diagnosis? Because I'd be very curious myself. I have many patients who have um, 
bipolar disorder who go through these swings. I have many patients who have borderline personality disorder who go through these swings where they'll feel really terrible, anxious, suicidal, and then all of a sudden better. Bipolar is the same. It can feel like it changes like overnight. Poof, we feel better. Um, even my patients who have DID, which is dissociative identity disorder, um, we can switch into another uh, state. If you don't know, dissociative identity disorder used to be called multiple personality disorder. And it's like we can have these alters. And so sometimes when we switch into another alter, we cannot be having the same issues that we were having previous. Um, so that could be that too. And those are really, really the only diagnoses that I can think of. Um, if you have any that you can think of, please feel free to leave it in the comments. But those are the ones I can think of that would explain this like automatic switch, unless you've started uh, medication, because medication can take like three, four, sometimes six weeks to like kick in and give us a full effect and help us. So there's that. Um, but other than that, I really am curious about your diagnosis. And I would tell your therapist about all of this because it's very suspicious. <laughs> um, unfortunately, even though this would be fucking awesome, mental illnesses just don't go away overnight. They slowly get better until we feel like we have like resolution of the symptoms, right? And we have to do work. There's effort that goes into it. It you know, it doesn't always have to be like a backbreaking effort or like we're just really fighting it. It doesn't always have to feel like that, but it's difficult and it is effort. And if you all of a sudden started feeling better, the the less mental, uh, like talking about diagnoses, if it was just like, oh, this happened, the more normal way that I hear about it is for someone to say, you know, things started to get better. I had a little setback, but then they it, you know, my symptoms went down and down. And then just the other day, I realized I haven't felt shitty for quite a little while. That's, that's kind of what I hear from people when they've worked through something. And, and it's funny, because I can't tell you how often my patients will be like, I just didn't realize that I hadn't felt shitty for a while. Because it, it's almost like, hey, I don't have an issue, right? There's not there's no like, alert in my head telling me how hard things are. There's nothing going on that's making it really difficult. And we just like, we're back to normal and we feel amazing and we take that for granted. We like don't realize. And so that's why it's good to check in sometimes and talk with our therapist about all the progress we've made because sometimes we forget how bad it used to be. Um, and so, yeah, I guess my answer to this is I'm curious about your diagnosis. I would assume it's one of the ones that I mentioned. Um, and I'd be interested to understand how long you were feeling bad and like why and how long you've been feeling good. And if this is like a pattern, because so often my bipolar patients in particular have seasons, like we're coming up in the fall uh, here, it's like October, right? So a lot of my patients start to like kind of slide into depression around this time. And I have to like monitor that and make sure that their medications on board if they're taking that and they're doing self care. And then in summertime, sometimes, I mean, I have a patient almost every June goes into a manic episode. And so I have to watch that and we have to monitor that. And so anyway, I'm just saying that because I'm curious if there's a pattern and I would talk to your therapist about it. But yes, talk to your therapist, let them know. And I would assume it's, it's diagnostic. There's a diagnostic reason behind this. It's nothing's happened. It's just sometimes our symptoms remit and go towards another way. Um, so yeah, I'd keep an eye on them. And I would notice if in case it's bipolar related, I would notice how much you're sleeping. Um, and if you feel like the need to talk a lot, and if you feel that's happening, please tell your therapist because you could be going into like a hypomanic or a manic episode. Okay. Question number nine. Hi, Katie. Ever since I talked about and tried to deal with my problems, problems being suicidal, insecurity, and stress, they are always on my mind and in my heart. 
I don't feel I'm really happy, even though I still laugh and chat. This unhappy feeling creeps in, especially when I don't talk to anyone and I'm alone. It has lasted about a year. Why is that? And how do I deal with it? Did you guys hear Sean sneeze? I hope you did. Anyways, um, back to the question. I think there's something about drawing attention to our issues. And I'm, I don't want this to be an encouragement for stuffing things down because we all know that doesn't work. And then they erupt like out of the blue and can ruin relationships, make situations more embarrassing. There's all sorts of shit that can go down. So please do not repress things and stuff them down intentionally thinking that it's going to make us feel better. Okay. But when we have repressed memories and we have things that we aren't dealing with, even though we can kind of feel like a low grade depression or anxiety or whatever you might experience could be a lot of different mental illnesses that can come along with that we can kind of manage that becomes like our baseline, our quote unquote norm, right? But then once we kind of shed light on all that shit that we've been stuffing down, it's like we opened that uh, huge, I don't know, bureau that we closed up in our basement. And we're like, Oh, my God, there's so many clothes and such a mess in there and all this old shit that I forgot about and like falls out at us. And it just never goes in the same way. So we can't put it back away and stuff it back in the way that it was. And therefore, I can feel like it's always hanging around. And even though that's uncomfortable, and I'm sorry you're going through this, it's actually a good sign because when our brain allows us to keep having this stuff float around and we're like, oh, even though this is happening, you know, it's, I hate that I'm thinking about this, but like ugh, everywhere I go, I'm like triggered and blah. it's good because it means that we're safe enough. And our brain is like, hey, remember all that shit I stuffed into that closet back in the day? Uh, we're safe now. Let's process it because it's a mess in here. And I'd really like to do some some fall cleaning, right? So it's actually a good sign. It's um, like I've told a lot of people over the years, we've talked about like flashbacks and how I'm like, I know it's uncomfortable, but it's good because our brain will bring those up and allow us to experience those when things are okay, when we're safe enough that it thinks it's time to process it. And so I would treat this the same way. So my encouragement for you would be to reach out to a therapist, see somebody, talk to somebody, um, do the work on processing through all the problems that came up. Like suicidality is serious and it comes out of this like feeling of hopelessness and helplessness. And I think it's important that we talk about that and better understand where it came from and how it progressed and what we can do to help ourselves in the future. So it doesn't happen again. And then insecurity, like how can we build up um, you know, our self-worth and fight that shame spiral and stress. Like what are, you know, there's a lot of things, there's a, so much uh, space here to do some good work to help you feel better. I would just encourage you to find someone and start working on it. And then just trust me when I tell you that treatment works. If we see somebody that we trust who works hard with us and we work hard with them, Maybe we see a psychiatrist as well and get on some medication if that's something we're open to, we feel is necessary. With all of the tools at our disposal, we can use those resources and start to feel better. And so I just want you to know that even though it feels like, you know, this unhappy feeling just creeps in when you're alone, you're not talking to anybody, we can get it to a point where it doesn't do that. Because my best guess is that your brain is like, hey, there's still stuff. Hey, we didn't process this. Hey, remember me? It's just trying to bring it up to you so that you 
work on it. And also, even when we're, we feel like we're recovered from maybe our depressive symptoms or our suicidal thoughts, it is common too. We have these seasons where those depressive feelings can creep in. But the important thing is, is when we did the work before to make them go away, we have those tools and those tools are still very important. We need to have them ready so that we can use them. So when it does start to creep in and we have those thoughts, we're like, what? I haven't heard, seen you in a while. I remember my friend Lindsay Sterling, when she came on my uh, my main channel, she was talking about her eating disorder, coming in with a new wig and a different dress on. And she's like, but I still know who you are. You're my eating disorder and you don't you don't belong here. We need to do that with our suicidal or depressive thoughts. We're like, uh, you're in a different costume, but I know who you are. Get the fuck out. And so I would just encourage you to work on that, uh, get those tools and have them ready so that we can make this go away and we can keep it away for good. And our final question, question number 10 says, Hey, Katie, how do you feel about clients telling you they really care about you? I'm really attached to my therapist and I wish she would be my mother. I've been feeling so much hurt because of the intensity of feelings I have that I wish I didn't. What does it feel like to you if a client tells you how important you are to them? I can't believe my therapist would care at all about me and why she should. I hope this question makes sense. I want you, I want, I just want to know if I'm just telling myself my therapist doesn't care. How do you feel about seeing clients struggling because of the transference in the therapeutic relationship? Okay. This is so common and it got a lot of questions where people felt really validated. So thank you for asking this. And the truth is, if a client told me this, it would be really, really helpful in our therapeutic work because, and I know this doesn't sound, this isn't what you're wanting, but this tells me a lot about your attachment and what's going on for you. And this is the transference, right? You're talking about the transference in the therapeutic relationship. This is so incredibly common. And then a lot of the work that I would do with you would be about understanding our relationship. I would talk openly about what's acceptable and not. And then we'd, I'd allow, obviously, I don't mean like allow, but like I would leave time and room for you to talk about how that feels for you and what comes up for you when I tell you that it's not appropriate to call at all hours or that I only allow texts when it comes to emergencies or scheduling. You know, some of the boundaries that we have in therapy, I would bring them up with you and I would want you to tell me how that, uh, you know, what that brings up for you, what feelings come about when I mention those things. And then I would want to dig into what your own mother was like. Like, I'd be curious about why you're wishing that I was your mother. I, I don't see this as like off-putting. I don't see this as um, uncomfortable. It's just more information for the work that we can do together. And I know the thing that's interesting about this when she's like, I'm sure she won't care. It's part of that uh, wounded child in you that's coming out and being like, I love her and want her to stay around, but I'm sure she wouldn't care about me because that's what the experience I've had in the past, right? our mother or primary caregiver wasn't there for us in the way we want. So I'm sure my therapist would act just like that because I've already been hurt by this. I have to prepare myself to be hurt again. It's kind of that like uh, self-fulfilling prophecy meets just like that's the pattern. That's what we know, right? If that's all we know, how can we come up with a different uh, ending? We can't. That's the only ending that we know. But talking about this in therapy is really the important part. And I think I would encourage you to talk about it with your therapist so then let them know that you struggle with this and you have these feelings and it's uncomfortable and you have guilt and shame about it and you're, you're sure it comes from your upbringing, but you still don't know how to process it um, because 
hopefully your therapist will do some of the attachment work. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about boundaries and I'm talking about when you were growing up and the things that you've wanted and, and then helping you reparent kind of like going back to the question. I think it was question number six, um, where we talked about reparenting. I would, you know, then that would be kind of the work that we would do together so that you could learn that it's not really me that you're wanting and loving. Um, I'm just the first person who's been supportive and caring and containing for you. There's something very healing about the therapeutic relationship. And this gives your therapist a wonderful opportunity to help you better communicate your feelings, learning how to self-soothe using tools and resources and reparenting that child you so that, you know, going back to my answer before question number six is like, so that we're not going to try to take relationships in the future and try to fill that hole with them. And it can, it can help. Well, it's more like it can prevent us from being hurt again. Again, it's like you're setting yourself up to be hurt again. I don't want you to be hurt again. And so I don't want you to take those people and try to fill that void. I want you to feel like learn how to heal that wound and fill that void on your own so that that need that we're feeling, that need for the therapist and wanting them close and wanting to tell them how much we care about them. We want that to, that urge to slowly go away. Um, but yeah, as far as how do how would I feel? I think it just tells me more about the therapeutic relationship and what we need to work on. And maybe I need to, that's why I said like, I would talk about boundaries again is because whenever I have a patient who discloses uh, wishing that I was their mother or wishing that they could uh, hang out with me all the time, or if they've tried to like push boundaries and email like every day, multiple times or call all the time, um, I'll restate those boundaries and we'll talk about it. The thing about therapy that's great and I want you all to take advantage of is it's a safe place to relearn these communication uh, techniques and set up healthy patterns and know that it's okay to express how we feel and what we're struggling with, knowing that the therapist can hear it and can contain it and can validate while offering you an alternative way to respond and react so that we don't keep perpetuating that pattern of like, but you're just going to say you don't care and and then we cut them off. We're like, you know, you don't care. And we move on. And then we're like wounded in our own urge to not self-sabotage, but it's like self-fulfilling prophecy. We're like, I knew it. So just anyway, um, we have to give it, we have to give ourselves a chance to have a different outcome and to figure out where this is coming from and to heal this wound. So we don't continue going through this in our life. Um, and it's very, very common. I have tons of videos about this attachment to your therapist. If you just look up Katie Morton attachment therapist, you'll find it. Um, yeah. So please, if you can, maybe write it down, practice saying it out loud, but please let your therapist know. I think this will be really helpful and healthy and it'll help the relationship not only grow, but also you and your relationship with yourself will grow and you will feel less dysregulated and more contained and hopefully just better about the situation and better able to soothe when you need to. Um, yeah, that's all. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope this was helpful. Make sure you send in your questions next Monday. Um, I am excited to hear from you. I think these are always wonderful questions. It gives me ideas for full video topics and things that we could really dig into um, in a really big way. Like maybe I should do another video about attachment with your therapist. I, I heard a lot of those questions recently. Um, so I'm happy to dig into that for you. Thank you so much for listening and watching. I love you all and I will see you next week. Bye. Or why your feelings hurt You can ask her why breakups suck Or why you've hit a plateau Inquire all those questions